Hi! Welcome to Season 2 of Me, Us, You. I'm Kayla, and this is SU's Declassified School Survival Guide, PWI Edition. In a school full of lawless squirrels, gross ginkgo berries, and an insane alumni network, the students on campus try to do the impossible and create a guide that will help you survive a PWI. In this episode of SU Declassified, you hear from me as I sit down with Journey Coker while we deep dive into the trials of being a black girl on campus and how we've learned to foster community and hold space for one another. Now I'm the vice president and it's like, I'm allowed to be a leader on this campus then you'll hear from Jenna Liu as she reflects on her culturally Asian background and interviews Madeline Corellis and Desley Norcross, who are Asian adoptees on campus. Together, they dissect the differences in their lives and how they've been confronted with their race on campus. I was a little surprised that they didn't share the shooting with me personally, but I think it was because they didn't want to upset me. Lastly, You'll hear from Kara Weaver, who sits down with rising junior Hannah Mackey and Amy Davis, the director of the CDI on campus, as they discuss allyship and the hypervisibility of people of color on campus. And I remember being blown away and being like, this is something I've never had to consider. This is SU's Declassified School Survival Guide, PWI edition. Hello, Cherry. <laughs> Uh, hi. So, um, so you're a sophomore, right? Rising junior. Yeah. I'm curious, Essa, when you think back to like your first semester um, on campus, how would you describe that experience or what are some moments that stood out to you? My first semester on campus, it was really fun. This sounds like, I don't know how to say this, but like, I felt like, like who I am is heightened here. And like, first semester I kind of had to take that into account and understand that like I'm so used to hanging out with my friends from back home like I'm so used to like being around like a lot of people that look like me so it's like being here and being around like a few people that look like me and then everybody else not looking like me it was a big adjustment but it wasn't that big of an adjustment because I went to a predominantly white school where like me and my brother and like two other kids were like the only black people like in the school let alone like in the grade so like I did not want to come here at first because I thought that it was going to take me back to those moments where I felt like so alone you know what I mean so like Mm -hmm. Coming here, it was heightened, but it wasn't heightened to an extent where I felt like I was alone because I did find those small communities. Like my freshman year, I joined Sydney Gamma Row, which is like a historically black sorority on campus. So like I found those small things that helped me feel like I was a part of something. Wow, I love that. I definitely really like, it was like, honestly like a cultural shock like coming like my school like it was pretty it was pretty diverse I think in high school and stuff and same with middle school but like it was very overwhelming like I I remember that first month like oh my god like why am I the only black person in my class like that was unheard literally for me it's crazy because I know both sides but I don't know why SU like kind of shocked me more than it did like when I was little but I think because when you're little like you don't understand that like idea of like I'm different because of my skin tone until like you start getting up in age and you start understanding like it's more systematic than it is skin color you know what I mean so like I think that's what came through on my freshman year I was like okay 
I gotta learn the game. <laughs> um, so you talked a bit about like you finding communities like on campus. Can you talk about like um, SG Row um, um, or if you're like involved in like the CDI? I'm curious about that. Um, so like first semester, like heavily, I was involved with like Black Student Union. And that was something that like really helped me because like we used to go there like every Wednesday. I think it was Wednesday, right? Okay. Because I'm like, if I remember this wrong, like we used to go there like every Wednesday. And like, that's how I found like the majority of my friends because it was like, we were all in a room and like, we were getting to know each other, talking about Black issues without like having to stray away from certain things or like dim our light to like let others shine and like things that happen in our room where we don't all look the same. So that was the big she part. Like I, it was never a if, it was always when I joined SGRO because my sister, like she's a legacy. She like founded the chapter on this campus. So like when I got there and I started to talk to them and like, you know, start developing sisterhoods and stuff like that, like that's when I also started finding myself more too because I was like, now I'm the vice president and it's like, I'm allowed to be a leader on this campus like with no apologies and like be unapologetically myself as opposed to like passing that off on other people because I feel like I'm, I'm like not deserving. So like, those were the two big things for me. I mean, I, I, I went to the CDI a lot like first semester just to like hang out with my friends, but like, I think BSU and SGRO really like were the staple of like everything. So at the beginning, um, you talked about like being involved in like psychology and like your major and stuff. So I'm curious as to like, how has that experience been like for you in your like psychology and your honors classes? Because there are so few black women on campus. With psych and honors, it's like, I find that in most of my psych classes, I am, always mostly the only black woman in the classes I mean this semester I have had like two other women that have been in my classes that were black so that was cool but like in honors I I I don't know like I don't I think I might be the only black person in honors I think like honestly like I don't know anybody else so like I don't see a lot of representation in the honors program but yeah I don't I don't really see a lot of representation when it comes to like my honors classes and stuff, which can be kind of, I, I don't want to say a disadvantage, but like the class that I'm in right now is honors social diversity. So it's like to be the only person in the class that is like marginalized and like a person of color, it's kind of hard because it's like, I feel like everybody's looking to me like to like, okay, defend this and tell us why this is bad and you know and at the end of the day sometimes I just don't want to speak like or sometimes I'm just not ready to put my oppression on like a a stage and like talk about everything and stuff like that so and it's not their fault like I think that everybody in my honor class like you know I think they're cool but like sometimes in that class I feel like it's my duty to say something because I'm the only person that looks like what we're talking about So that's one of the things that like always is in the back of my mind. And then with psych, like, I just wish we would talk more about like, I wish there was like a multicultural perspective psychology class, like which I'm sure they are, there is, but like, it's probably just not offered or like they can't get enough students or whatever the case may be. But like, just understanding why African-Americans specifically 
do not get the help that they need because of the fact that like our community is so like mistreated that like higher institutions like we don't trust them and like Mm -hmm. that stigma behind mental health comes from that like I feel like everybody struggles with something so I just wish that there was a class that kind of highlights like black psychologists or like just like the multicultural perspective as opposed to like European psychology and just talking about like the founders and you know people that we already know when we can go in depth about like who was the first black psychologist to like discover something you know what I mean so first of all I'm just completely in awe like hearing you talk about it because you know I'm a creative writing major I'm literally on the other side of the spectrum (laughs) (laughs) but it's so interesting because I think it all you also kind of highlight this I think an issue just like the education system in general how we teach a history usually you know associated with white men and white people in general and we say that that's the history that is you know worth you know right like listening to you know and I feel like a black psychology class on campus that would be so that would be so interesting like seriously they have one I think they're offering it during the drop ad period this semester I think that's what's going because I saw it or a teacher mentioned it to me but I just that stimulated a thought in my mind because I'm like wow, like there's not a lot of psychology courses on this campus that like, even in like my honors classes, like no disrespect to the professors or anything like that, but I wish we had more like black writers that we talked about. I mean, Dr. Thomas, like he's so amazing because like he based our honors and thought class on like James Baldwin and like other black writers that like, you know, kind of created a sense of like community and things that we needed to talk about in that class. And like his class, I want to say like, quote unquote, kind of spoiled me into thinking that like I would be reading more Black authors and more like diverse readings. And then like I get to certain classes and it's like all European perspective and stuff like that. You talked a bit about um, like being in honors and literally being the only kind of Black person in those classes. I wanted to share this statistic um, because it really like... um, I found it very interesting and I feel like we could both talk about it. I found this article in like Thought Co and it was saying how black Americans in the United States um, are like among those who are most likely to get a post-secondary degree, but also um, like black women um, make up over 50% of the number of black people who receive post-secondary degrees. So we kind of um, exceed in that regard. And you talked a bit about this in your honors class and like, you know, feeling kind of some pressure. I was curious if like, like, how does that make you feel? Like, what do you think about that? Um, Honestly, I think that that there's something to be said for that because I think that like Malcolm X said, like black woman, the black woman is like the most disrespected person in America. And I think that like, it's something to be said for the fact that we do exceed our expectations and our limitations. And I think that like people know our power and tend to like diminish it because they know how far we can go and how far we can reach so honestly at first like I was thinking about dropping the honors program I'm not even gonna lie like I think about it kind of a lot sometimes but then I'm like I've come too far you know like I'm the type of person I hate like starting something and not finishing it I think it comes from my mom like she's always telling me like don't start something if you're not gonna finish it so like now that I've decided to continue on to graduation and do my capstone and do like honors full out, like 
I kind of want to talk about that in my capstone because I think that our, our research is like dependent upon what we want to do. And I just want to talk about like how black women, they do exceed all expectations. And I think that people don't understand that because we're kind of, we're taught to diminish ourselves because other people diminish us. Wow. Yeah. That's really powerful. Oh my gosh. Um, you kind of talked a bit about this when we talked about your first semester on campus, but I'm curious as to like, what was, I think, a moment that was like the biggest culture shock for you? I, I remember like during elections, that was a big thing for me because I felt like my experience with people who are prejudiced were like, I wouldn't say surface, but it was more so microaggressions as opposed to like outright racism and prejudice. Like when I, I was little, like the kids in my school used to like pick on me for having big lips or like unkempt hair as they would say or like but like those are microaggressions like I felt like those were so surface but like when you see that somebody's like beliefs political beliefs are like deeply rooted in someone who's spewing hatred and like racism like that was such a shock to me like I was like people actually have Trump signs in their windows in like dormitories or in their windows on 18th like and it just was so weird to me because I was just like like, I just thought that that was so crazy. And that was like the biggest culture shock for me because I'm like, that's like ridiculous. Like, and I'm not even saying that people have to change their political views because whatever you believe in, that's you. But it's like for you to believe in someone so much that you're like saying racist things, being like bigots and like ignorant, like that was so crazy to me. I, I honestly, like I could, ne- I could never understand like that ideology and those beliefs being so embedded in someone's identity that when you critique it when you say that's really like harmful it's you know it's a they kind of have a explosive response like that's just so like crazy to me and even like being on campus like you kind of know who might fall (laughs) on which side of the political spectrum yeah and it's just like it's so it's like at least like for me being in those spaces and like I know what like you being the only um you know black girl in your STEM classes and it being like kind of rare to have more like like more than one black person in my classes now like and if it is it's usually someone who I already know like it's no one brand new like it's hard because like you're in these spaces and you're just like oh I'm the only one or like am I the only one like you can't it's it's like troubling it brings a lot of anxiety is what I'm trying to say even like as a woman, it brings even more anxiety and pressure because it's like, it's so fearful to like be named that angry black woman that just wants to say whatever. And like, I think that it's something to be said for the fact that like, I feel like everyone else can say what they want to say and like be angry and be validated in that. But I feel like black women are like the most invalidated people when it comes to like what they believe in and what they want to say. It's always like, why do you have to be so angry or like the whole sassy aspect of it and I just think that like no like this is what I believe and I don't want to be invalidated in that but it's also like there's anxiety not to say things because it's like now I don't want to like pressure myself into being in that situation and also have others pressure me into understanding like I just I just think that like it's not worth explaining to people who are like committed to misunderstanding you Oh my gosh. Yeah. That last, oh my God, that last part. And it's just so, like you said, like people, they, 
their intention is to not understand you. Like they don't care. And it's even like worse when you're in these spaces where you have to feel like you have to defend yourself and stuff. They'll always critique the the method in which you say what you say and not what right. you're actually saying. Like, yeah. and it's, it's unfair how like, you know, for example, a white girl's rage is valid. Like she has, yeah, she has all this anger. Yes, let it free. But black woman, we don't get that luxury to just have that anger and to, you know, literally unleash it I always think that college is kind of this coming of age experience so I'm curious as to how that might have unfolded for you so far I think that the shift in how I feel about myself happened with that culture shock like I think that before like I used to like when I was little and I used to be in like predominantly white spaces like I used to try to shift myself to like I used to wear like makeup that was like thousands of shades lighter than me for some reason like I used to try to like wear lipstick colors to fit in or straighten my hair and like little like things that have to do with physicality but like now that I'm here and I understand that like whether you hate me whether you love me like I don't care and like being unapologetically myself like I think that's what happened in college I don't change myself for anybody anymore and I would say that like I had like a different experience like it was kind of like a weird experience because I know some people would think that like a culture shock would make them change and mold and adapt and stuff like that but like for me it just made me even want to be even more of a leader instead of a follower and understand that like I don't have to be any way that anybody else is because I'm not them like I could just be myself and so I think the change in myself was that like noticing for myself like you don't have to be anything that you're not if you don't want to or if that's not your prerogative like as long as you're staying true to who you are because people like are literally gonna like not like you regardless and misunderstand you like I said like if somebody's committed to misunderstanding you no matter what you do it's always going to be that so I think that like coming here I understand that like I don't have to be anything I'm not like when people say things about like my personality or like the best one is like the way I talk like people love talking about the way I talk like they're like you're so proper you talk like a white girl and all this stuff but it's like that's just me and it's just so nice hearing like you say it because like obviously like I know you and like I relate I feel like I had like a lot of the similar um like kind of realizations coming to like college and stuff in different ways and different fonts <laughs> but right it's it's so true like I can't stop thinking about you saying that like people are going to be committed to misunderstanding you to labeling you and that's nothing to do with you like you know yeah like someone's opinion of you has nothing to do with you and that's really freeing and I think it's important to like I think internalize that because especially being a black girl like people like that's their whole that's their whole gig that's their whole job they clock in clock out they don't they don't care (laughs) no literally and it's like weird because it's like why me like I see so many people on campus like do the weirdest thing but it's like when I'm on the phone it's like let me look at her like what is she doing or like when I'm talking to my friends oh my god they're together and they're laughing like what does that mean like (laughs) like literally I feel like it's such a stage (laughs) As opposed to like mind, like I feel like minding your business is like the best business you can be about. Like I just don't, <laughs> right? <laughs> because literally, I feel like everything I do here, and that's another thing. Like I feel so watched. Like I feel like everything I do here is so conceptualized, and I'm just like, yes. 
I'm walking. <laughs> like, it's like okay. your walking performance art, basically, for them. Right? Here's a walking I'm like, performance art. <laughs> humans walk. You're doing it. Like, you want to watch me? I'll watch you. Like, I, it's just crazy. There are lots of things to consider when choosing college. A huge factor will always be financial reasons. But as my high school career in finance teacher told me, we are young and have time to take risks. So for me, as an Asian American from a family of immigrants, I should have focused on diversity, except I didn't. And I landed myself at a PWI, a predominantly white institution. I landed myself at Susquehanna University. It became increasingly obvious that I was one of the few Asian students on campus. My friends and I searched up the demographics, and the Asian population makes up 1.8% of the student body. This sparked someone to say, 2% represent. Except we don't even make it to the 2% mark. It made me wonder, who makes up the 1.8% besides me? I ended up making three different categories. One, there are the Asians who come from culturally Asian families, like me. Two, there are the Asian adoptees, who usually come from white families. Three, there are the international students who tend to stick together. With the pandemic bringing awareness to the discrimination against Asians all over the world, I spent time reflecting on how it has been so long since I really heard from the Asian community. It took the pandemic for this sort of unity. So, coming from a PWI, I began to think that it is time to reach out to get some voices that we do not usually hear from, starting with a couple Asian adoptee voices. I spoke with Madeline Corellis and Desley Norcross, who are both sophomores at Susquehanna University, about their Asian adoptee experiences. I felt curious about their experiences with the pandemic and how they felt. For instance, Madeline gave me an interesting perspective on how she felt throughout the progression of COVID-19 and the hate against Asians. I've learned a lot since the pandemic. I think that's one of the things that forced me to reflect on my racial identity because it wasn't something I thought about that much before, but I had a lot of time during quarantine and with the, the rise in COVID, that was something that was on my mind. So I learned a lot about like, the model minority myth and a lot of um, just the experiences of adoptees and Asian Americans in general in the United States. At first, I didn't really think too much about it when COVID first started. Obviously, it was a bad thing, but it didn't really resonate with me completely. I knew it was happening and it was an added thought I had when I left the house. But I think the shooting in Georgia really affected me more than I thought it would. It just seemed very dangerous because that could happen to anybody and that could happen to me. And it was very extreme, the shooting of, of six Asian women. I think that was sort of almost like a wake up call to me that that could happen to my friends or people I care about who are Asian or myself. Meanwhile, Disney showed that being an Asian adoptee may create a disconnect from what is happening. Becoming more aware of the crimes against Asian Americans, specifically for their ethnicity, has increased my sense of awareness about my own identity and its importance because it makes you kind of want to 
stand up for your people in a sense. And I will, though I will say I'm not the most aware as in I can recite certain articles or everything, but I will say that thankfully by being close to other Asian Americans, they've been keeping me in the loop with what's happening. And I do know that especially with the pandemic that a lot of Asian Americans are being blamed for the pandemic, as well as just other race hate crimes that have been happening, such as the shooting that occurred recently. And it's really sad. And it's something that I would, I would easily say a few years ago, I never would have expected, surprisingly, even though I know that race crimes happen to every minority, but just becoming more aware about it now has definitely changed my perspective. Luckily, my parents are very involved in the Asian American news. I was a little surprised that they didn't share the shooting with me personally, but I think it was because they didn't want to upset me, so to say, which has its positives and negatives because I feel like, especially as the person who could potentially be affected, I should know as much as possible. So if they get some news that they should tell me but they definitely have, they are constant watchers of the news. So they do know the hate crimes that are going on and tell me to be careful to have my phone on me. They gave me like a safety device that if I pull out a pin, a large alarm will come, come off. So people will be able to find me and stuff like that. This is another separator as being an adopted Asian American versus um, an Asian American who whose parents came from Asia is that my parents and family aren't in any danger. My family is completely white. So this is something they don't necessarily have to worry about. The disconnect the adoptees feel may increase when they go into college. That made me think about how, when I started college, I was dropped off in an unfamiliar place. But added with the unfamiliarity of individuals around me, it was a jarring experience. While trying to find my place, more than ever, I was craving diversity. I joined the Asian Cultural Association on campus, helping to find people like me. And I wondered if the same thoughts applied to adoptees. So I talked to Malin, who shared her perspective as a college student. When I was coming in to Susquehanna as a freshman or first year, I wasn't really too concerned about diversity because I was used to it at home, but not really from my own personal need because I didn't really connect with being Asian. I just liked being around people with different backgrounds independently of how I thought of myself. Something that resonated with me was the transition from high school to college because for everybody that's a big part of finding yourself and figuring out your own identity. But for the adoptee, it's also realizing um, that you are Asian because a lot of adoptees grow up in white families and predominantly white schools. So they are um, just seen, they're known by their peers and by their family members. But when you go to college, you're seen as Asian first because people don't know your background and you don't really tell people that you're adopted. It's not usually the first thing you say. So just being seen for your race and being um, treated that way was a wake-up call to many adoptees, including myself, and it helped to make me think more about what it means to be Asian.
we have to remember in minority communities that everybody has their own experience too. There's no set like Asian experience. My Asian experience is not typical since I am an adoptee. So when I think about the typical Asian experience, and I think when a lot of adoptees do, we think about speaking the language, um, the difficulties of maybe immigrating into the United States since that comes with its own challenges, eating ethnic foods at dinner and having that community, I think fitting into that cultural, cultural community um, is a little bit isolating for adoptees since they don't, um, don't fit into that community completely, but also appearance wise, like I'm Asian and everyone will perceive me as Asian. So I think that's definitely part of what it means to be Asian to me. Madeline made me question what being an Asian meant. And I had the opportunity to pose the question to Desley. But before that, we have a message from a sponsor. This segment is sponsored by Susquehanna University's Asian Cultural Association. The Asian Cultural Association is an organization on campus where they teach diversity through learning about the Asian culture. They seek to be an informational resource on the Asian community by teaching through personal experiences or research. Now back to our segment. We have Desley who explained what being an Asian means to her. You're not an Asian American who's lived through stereotypical or traditional Asian experiences. You've lived in kind of normally a, from what I've been talking to my other adopted friends, a very white kind of upbringing. So this kind of, this impacts your own perceptions and therefore it's harder for me to identify with people who have grown up in traditional Asian households, but also because I am an Asian American, I can't also fully identify with white society. So you're kind of in an in-between state, but people have given me positive reactions when I explain my adoption. And I know that it's a sensitive topic for some adoptees. They can have some bad memories with their adoption process, but I was lucky. I was with a good agency and I was placed with a good family. So I've never really had problems with talking about people, but I believe that these different experiences and levels of sensitivity can make adoption a difficult topic for some people. Essentially, what ethnicity wise, an Asian American is an Asian American, but this adopted aspect can sometimes have a cultural divide, I want to say, with the differences in experiences. But at the same time, I feel like in Susquehanna that I've been able to use that kind of to my advantage because after meeting other adopted Asian Americans. And it's something that you can talk about that's in common. And I've been able to bond with people through that as well as my Asian American identity. So I'd say that in some cases it can be a little difficult when grappling with situations that might pertain to specifically one of the groups more relevantly than the other. But overall, I feel like I've been able to use both sides of that identity to be able to connect to, to both parts of the Asian American identity in general. Overall, diversity is so important because there is always someone out there who will understand us. Our situations may seem unique, but there is something similar. For me, being Asian meant that I need to represent a part of me that I could never authentically explore because I was born in America.
contrary to what some might think since I have been asked various times where I was from. If you want an answer, it's Pennsylvania. I know, shocker. That I was able to identify as an Asian despite the disconnect from my family's home country. However, I do admit that maybe it was the fact that I lived with the culture and spoke the language that helped. Part of me really wants to have a better connection with my roots because it always felt like I was missing out. I was in my own in-between state. So as I was talking to Madeline, she reminded me of the importance of social media and its ability to connect people together. I learned a lot um, in the past year about the adoptee experience because I joined Facebook groups um, and there's lots of communities of adoptees. So I was able to hear their different experiences and their opinions about different things because most adoptees um, live in white families in white neighborhoods where there's not a lot of diversity. So one way that we connect is through Facebook and other social media. And it's great to hear everything they had to say, especially with um, feeling disconnected with culture just because of being racially isolated from other Asian Americans and other um, adoptees as well, since the adoptee experience is unique in that we are Asian, but we were not raised culturally Asian. When I say I'm an adoptee, um, I feel like a lot of people don't understand what that means because adoption is portrayed very negatively or even like as a joke in the media. So I have so much more to say to them about the experience and diversity and the disconnect from culture and just so much more to say. So I feel like whenever I tell someone I'm an adoptee, I also want to tell them all that stuff, which can be hard because they probably don't want to listen to me, but I feel like it needs to be said. Personally, I don't and have never identified as white. My, my family is white. I was raised in a white family, but I don't experience the world as a white person would because I am Asian. At the same time, I'm not, I'm not aware of the culture, uh, the Chinese culture or much of my like background. So there's that disconnect for a lot of ad adoptees also not feeling um, Asian enough, but feeling too Asian in white spaces. So I think that's something that adoptees and also um, children of immigrants um, in America can relate to. And a lot of adoptees are really embracing their culture and they'll cook Chinese foods and they'll learn Chinese. Personally, that's not something I'm interested in doing, but I think that's great that they are. And right now I really like identifying as an Asian adoptee rather than trying to fit myself into uh, being white or being Asian and feeling in between those two. But talking to Desley reminded me that some people may not want to explore their original culture for the sake of connecting back to it. I would like to, con to connect back to my roots, like visit my birthplace, but I wouldn't say it's purely for my my root sake i just generally am a person that is interested in learning about other cultures and traveling so it's it's kind of interesting like i definitely do see myself as an asian american and like have fully embraced that part of myself but i've also feel like i've personally embraced and see myself as an american as well so i don't feel such a kinship with my home country i 
we'll see what's going on and stuff like that. But I would say that my primary identity would be an American first before being an Asian. I definitely don't understand what it's like to be an Asian adoptee coming from a family who actually immigrated from China and Hong Kong. For me, my disconnect is mainly from the idea of I'm not really seen as fully Chinese by like people in China because I am like disconnected from their culture. Yet I come to America and I do feel like an outsider sometimes because I'm different. But before we continue, we have a message from a sponsor. This segment is sponsored by Susquehanna University's Green Dot Bystander Intervention Program. This segment is sponsored by Susquehanna University's Green Dot Bystander Intervention Program. Green Dot is a bystander intervention program where students and staff learn skills that will help them interrupt situations of power-based violence when they see them. So let's do our part to hashtag protect the nest. Now back to our segment. We have Madeline explaining about how she has educated herself about her identity. I have a lot of knowledge now um, from reading, I have read a lot of different perspectives um, in the last year, and I want people to be open to hearing those things. I think sometimes it's hard to get that conversation started, but if you do, I will talk a lot about it, and you can learn a lot, and I like learning things from other people, too. It's something I genuinely enjoy talking about. When it comes to learning, it is all right to ask questions. After listening to both Madeline and Desley, they help me understand that we are all learning from each other. If you're curious about something, there's no harm in asking about it, especially like if you have honest intentions about it. Because personally, I'm still exploring a lot about my identity myself and what it means to be an Asian American. But I really enjoyed having conversations with other people on their adoption experiences, their other experience about being an Asian American, because really it can be so different depending on your background, on where you came from. And those are all things that is important to remember, especially if, I mean, there's a lot, as I said before, there's a lot of stereotypes surrounding Asian Americans. And while some of them might be true for some people, it would be just as with any other stereotype, it would be wrong to assume it for all, for every person of a certain ethnicity. Until now, I never got the chance to speak with many Asians, let alone Asian adoptees, about their experiences. For me, I thought we were riding along the same wavelength, that we had this hidden understanding about our identity. However, I was wrong because I have access to more of my cultural roots through language, tradition, and even food. These are the voices that made me think, wow, I never thought people felt this way. They may not resonate with me, and I acknowledge that, but I continue to think about the voices that have been quiet, the voices that deserve a space to be heard. Hi everyone, my name is Kara Weaver and I am a sophomore double majoring in creative writing and English editing and publishing with minors in women and gender studies and diversity studies. I decided to approach my segment from an ally point of view, asking the questions that spark conversations that are often avoided out of fear of making mistakes or saying the wrong thing. 
While attending a PWI, it is important that students in the majority culture on campus do their part to understand their peers and confront their own biases and prejudices. Previously in the episode, you've heard from Kayla and Jenna as they interviewed students about their experiences at a PWI. Journey shared advice with us as a black woman in STEM, emphasizing that minding your own business is the best business. Jenna interviewed multiple Asian students that are all in different situations and highlighted the ways in which they navigate campus and the challenges that come with it. Based on those, I want to use this segment to explore allyship and understanding while attending a PWI. The biggest thing to remember is that the conversation about what makes a good ally changes every single time you have it. Everyone has a different opinion in the matter, whether it be what terms are appropriate to use or what books we should be reading to educate ourselves. The truth is, there's no real answer. I wanted to talk to people who had experience with the subject, specifically starting with Amy Davis, the program coordinator at Susquehanna's Center for Diversity and Inclusion. She works with supporting and advocating for underrepresented students, as well as educating the majority culture on campus. She views this as a roundabout way to support the BIPOC and LGBTQ populations by helping their peers better themselves in the way they interact. Using what I learned from my conversations with Amy, I also conducted an interview with Hannah Mackey. Hannah is a sophomore at Susquehanna, double majoring in creative writing and English publishing and editing. She's also one of the hosts for the D&D episode of Me, Us, You. One of the things I was thinking of when I first was making the questions is you mentioned actually in our group chat a while ago that like you said something about how many um, people of color were in your class and you were like talking about that and being like excited about it. And I remember being like, this is something I've never had to consider. Mm-hmm. Um, could you just talk a bit more about what that's like and what like starting new classes mm-hmm. is like for you? Yeah, um, I think I came, like I, I became more aware of it um, this semester, especially because I've been off campus for so long. I did go to like a predominantly white institution growing up my like literally my whole life. It wasn't like too much of a shock, but I think when I really looked at my classes, because when I pick my classes, I don't think how many Black people are going to be in the class. I just take the class because it's, you know, I, I I see, I try to see, like, do I need to take this because it's required? Do I need to, like, um, and I already know that, that you know, going to a PWI, you already are going to get spaces that are, that are predominantly white, you know, that's just how it is. Um, but I didn't really realize it until there was a class of like 30 people with 30 people in it. Um, that's my American dream class, which I love very much. Um, it's a history class and I enjoy it a lot. Uh, but there's like me and two other people that are students of color in the class. Um, it doesn't feel like our voices are getting overshadowed or anything like that during class, but it definitely does stand out and is very prominent when I'm like, focus on the class and like wow that's a lot of white students um and I think it just it makes you feel more alienated from everyone else um like I I feel like I have to speak out more and like participate more and know more um and be more careful about like standing out at the same time if that makes sense uh because I think more attention will be called to me because I'm the only girl with an afro puff in her class. I'm the only girl with like, whatever. I'm the only girl with brown skin in, in her class. So that's the other thing. I think there is a bit more like, I feel a little bit more isolated and I feel like I have to be out, be like more, more extroverted, more outgoing than I normally am um, when I'm just talking with people and things like that. This idea of visibility and feeling like they're being asked to represent their entire identity is something that I remember talking to Amy about. 
I had asked her specifically how to frame my questions in a way that avoided the common mistake of making people feel like spokespeople. Finding a way to incorporate an opportunity for students to tell a story if they'd like to. I think folks so rarely have the opportunity to hear that, to say, listen, this project is so important because, you know, we want to shed light on these experiences. But I acknowledge that to move through this campus, it's kind of straddling hypervisibility and invisibility, right? So there's never kind of just existing. She encouraged me to go deeper with this conversation asking them about specific classroom interactions they've had and how they feel about how they were handled. Um, during my first semester, I was taught in a class, I was, we were workshopping pieces and I was talking about a specific student's piece that I, that I really enjoyed. Um, and the moment I said like the first two comments, uh, I was told by the professor to like, basically like, just like, you're, you're talking too much. We're going to move on to another student. Um, cause I was, I was, I guess I was saying too much. And I guess it was more so that I was just very excited to talk about the piece. Um, but there was another student in the class who was white and she would go off on tangents and it just made me very confused. Like, why not cut her off? Why do I have to be cut off? So sort of after that moment, I just stopped like raising my hand in the class. Uh, I was just like, well, I don't want to be called out like that again, because that's sort of humiliating um so that sort of drew me back from participating um and I'm sure like the the professor um I'm, I'm sure that they weren't trying to be super intentional and like trying to like point me out and single me out but it definitely felt like I it felt like you're gonna let this other student sort of go off but like the moment that I say a few things it's like we're gonna move on to the next student I think it was mainly because uh, I was I was raising my hand a lot in, in in the class to start off, even though no one else wanted to start off. So, and I'm the kind of person where it's like, if no one else is going to participate, I might as well participate. And if you don't want to call on me, you just don't have to call on me. Um, so I, I felt like it didn't need to be like a as big of a thing as it was. Um, but yeah, I've, I've had more incidents I can think outside of the classroom than I think in the classroom. Um, I mean, my a uh, roommate who I will not name, um, she's a, she, she's white, um, and she was one time where she was asking me about a friend that she had who was Black, and they, and she was saying how, what did she even say, like, you can't get sunburned because you're Black, or something like that, and the friend took offense, I think, and she was asking me why. And I was like, once again, I, girl, I wish I could tell you. I have no idea how to answer that. Um, so so there was that moment. There was a moment where she brought someone over, uh, a friend, and she was she was gossiping and talking about another student, which I, I don't like talking about people. I try to avoid it as best as I can. Um, but we were talking about another student who happened to be Black, and she prefaced a sentence by saying, um, it's, what did she say? Um, it was like along the lines of like, you know, the people that are like, I'm not trying to be racist or something like that. Um, and that immediately was like, oh, something mildly racist is, well, I guess there's no such thing as mild racism. Something racist about to come out of her mouth. Um, so there was that moment as well. Um, and that made me uncomfortable because I was like, I don't want this girl in my room. Um, 
But yeah, there were like little things like that. There was an incident where I was talking to another student and she was going on a rant about why her, and she called her friends colored, which big indicator, maybe, maybe something's wrong here. Um, And she was talking, she was upset because she was like, I don't understand how like I'm just as, I'm just as poor and broke as my colored friends, but like I'm considered privileged didn't know how to answer her felt so uncomfortable I was like I like and now it's with the instances and like the things that I faced up until this point I think I would have like now where I am I would have said something but in the moment you kind of don't know what to do um you know there was another incident where a student basically called me the n-word I won't get into that because I can't get into much detail with that um but there was that incident I had to report it and it was a big thing um and you know that affected me too so you know there are many different scattered experiences that i've had with microaggressions and just straight up racism um and people are like context matters but in reality context doesn't matter when it's just you on a camp like it feels like it's you versus the world i guess when you're on a campus like this and it and you you think i know what i'm gonna do when i face a situation and then it hits you and you don't know what to do like there's no how to treat racism manual uh you kind of just have to 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 deal with it as it comes to you uh you you think i'm just gonna fight them right then and there i no i just like was more in shock than anything else and didn't know what to say one of the things i knew i wanted to ask specifically was how they think allyship should be handled in both cases the emphasis was placed on human interaction and communication it was interesting to hear from two perspectives that have different experiences with allyship Amy outlined some of the ideas she has picked up from her own research and work over the years, saying that she views it as a three-step process. First, it really starts with understanding your own positionality, you know, self-awareness, being aware of who you are and how you move through the world. I always tell students it's like we have these lenses on and we can never take them off. And those are all of the things that make up our identity. So I can never move through the world without the lenses that I wear as a adopted Colombian woman, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I can, however, become more and more aware of those lenses and what those lenses mean and recognize that I interpret all of the experiences and all of the behavior of others through those lenses. We all have cultural perspectives that we don't exist in a vacuum. And in that, even confronting like our own personal biases. After that, I think the idea of education and understanding and exploring of other perspectives and other cultures and other individuals is really important. But as we seek to understand and learn, this is also where we do some reading. You know, there's so many good books out there. What Does It Mean to Be White by Robin D'Angelo or How to Be an Anti-Racist or Why Do All the Black Kids Sit Together at the Cafeteria? Educating ourselves through conversations and reading and film and all of these areas that we can. And then finally is sort of that application. And that's the messiest because it involves interactions and we can only ever control one person and that's ourselves. So I always tell folks when I'm training as well, there's absolutely one guarantee in diversity and inclusion work. And that is that you will make mistakes. And I have done this for over a decade, this kind of work. 
And I make mistakes all the time. As you're working toward becoming an ally, you'll say the wrong thing, ask the wrong question, all of these things that can come up. So I think the biggest commitment that we can make is to stick with it even when things become uncomfortable. True ally is humble and willing to accept that mistakes are a part of this important process. Ask the questions and not to make it about ourselves either. So when we make that mistake, humbly moving on, not make, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. I'm so sorry. Like, you know, not drawing this extra attention. And so I should say too, with application, it's not just about being humble and making mistakes and owning mistakes. For me, the absolute crux of that is real relationships, deep relationships. Nothing takes the place of real meaningful relationships. And so again, that's part of that third tier. I posed the same question to Hannah and she talked about how there's no right or wrong answer. It's up to the situation. Um, I think the biggest thing to be aware of, uh, when you is, is just because I don't want it to be eggshells that people walk on all the time. I know that there's already people who are like, do I say black or do I refer to you as African-American? And some people will say black, some people will say African-American, but not everyone, not every black person is African-American and not every black person wants to be referred to as black. So you kind of had those distinctions, you have those little like things as well. Um, so I think the biggest thing that you can do is to one, be transparent, to ask. Um, I think the issue with like, you, you obviously you like, at least for me, I don't want to constantly have to educate like white friends or anything like that as to what they should and shouldn't do. I think sometimes it's obvious, but I think there is sometimes like people want to be careful. So I think it's just good to be, be transparent with your black friends, uh, black students. Um, like if you have a question, frame it in a way that's not like making them seem like they are the spokesperson for all black people as well. That I get that how that can be hard, but I think there's so many resources and things online that sort of help you sort of negate that and 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 help you avoid some of those like questions about can I do this or can I say this or what would you like to be referred to as and things like that. Um, and I think the other thing is don't alienate black people in spaces. Um, and that's the other thing. Like don't single people out um i think this goes for any person of color but i but more so speaking from the the at least for myself um i i wouldn't want to be singled out or like embarrassed or anything like that um it it, it definitely messes with me i i mean i already have like anxiety and things like that and i think that sort of plays into it um so you know there's that as well um and just like listening, that's the other big thing. Listen, if you are called out by like a, another black student or something and they say, hey, you're not supposed to say this or hey, you shouldn't have done that. Just listen. I think and that ties into white fragility where a lot of white people will be like, whoa, I wasn't trying to be racist. It's like, okay, maybe you weren't trying to be racist, but your action was racist or your action was prejudice. Like, I think people have to really like, examine themselves and reflect on themselves and realizing that um that no I do I may I'm you may not be a racist individual you may have grown up in the best home you may be a liberal you may be whatever that doesn't mean you're not going to be 
not prejudiced and not racist. So if someone says, hey, you just did something or said something that was offensive, listen, don't start like apologizing or crying. It's, it's like, you know, don't make it about yourself. Just take that as a time, as a learning moment, a stepping stone um, and move forward. Just move on. It's, it's, it's okay. Things, you know, um, racism isn't okay, but if you slip up and you say something, you know, and someone corrects you on it, don't harp on it. Don't think, oh, they're going to they're think I'm racist now. No. Um, you know, ignorance plays a big role in this as well. Not, we're not going to know everything. We're not going to know what's comfortable around everyone. Although making mistakes is unavoidable, something that both Amy and Hannah emphasized, I wanted to make sure that going into this segment, I wasn't making any mistakes that could be easily avoided. One of the things I realized when I did a lot of self-reflection was that I used to rely on the people of color in my life to educate me on how to be a better ally. Looking back, that's not the best way to go about things. And it's not fair to them. So, I wanted to ask Amy about things like this that would be good to keep in mind while interviewing students. I also asked what conversations she has had with students of color about this in particular and their interactions with allies. She emphasized focusing on the individual not just one part of their identity. Historically underrepresented students, um, you know, can be very tired of, of, of educating. Um, and so I think the more specific questions you have, the better, you know, because there is an emotional labor and a mental labor that comes with, with um, explaining things. And, and, you know, for me, it's my job, right? And, and so you know, that's, I, I enjoy it. I, this, I, this is what I signed up for. I love, I love having conversations and, and thinking about that in training. And, and so for our students who willingly agree, like they often are doing that because they have something to share. But even for those students, I think, you know, really asking specific questions that show that you've already put thought into and they even have some level of understanding of what they might be experiencing can be really helpful. I brought this idea into some of my ending questions for Hannah. I wanted to give her space to talk about intersectionality and how often it is overlooked. I asked her if there were any other parts of her identity that she felt had affected her experiences here since there isn't often space to talk about the overlap. Oh yeah, Um, I think being a black woman in itself is also um, a very different experience. Um, and on top of mental health, I, I've struggled with depression and anxiety. Um, and I don't know if you could, you could consider this a disability. I guess it depends on the person. Um, but I have like undiagnosed ADHD that like I've gone to doctors and they kind of are all kind of saying the same thing. I just haven't gotten officially tested for it, which is why I'm like, it's there. Like that, that's what they're, a lot of them are pointing to. <laughs> um, but I think all of that does play a role because in the Black community, there is an, what's how, how can I phrase this? There's not a lot of space to talk about mental illness. There's not a lot of space to talk about, um, especially like sexuality. Um, I do think that like, there's a lot of homophobia and that there's a lot of toxic masculinity. Um, and a lot of this you can you can link back to the past and you can link it back to the oppression that we've kind of faced. Um, but I do think it's very rampant and there are plenty of like trans black 
um, people that get that get killed and murdered and, and things like that. You have to be on your toes. There's black men who are who are gay and they are like ostracized from the community. Um, so I mean, like there is a lot of inner working stuff on top of the outer stuff that we have to deal with that is affecting us sort of inter intersectionally. And I think those are worries that I that I definitely have. Um, so I think that hasn't like majorly, I think, affected how I go about campus. I think I'm very careful about walking around at night and things like that, because I think there is a more element of danger if you're a minority on a predominantly white campus, especially a female minority. Um, so yeah, I kind of went off the rails with this question, um, but I feel like there's just, it's, it, there's a lot to cover when it comes to intersectionality in the black community. Um, once again, I, I, I mean, I don't speak for every black person, but I think that's how I'm, that's how I'm viewing it. And that's how I sort of look at it, I guess. At the end of the interview, I wanted to finish by asking Hannah what she thought was most important for someone to take away from listening to this segment. I definitely want people to take away the fact that you, just from the outside of a person, you don't know everything. It's not good to make assumptions about a person just by looking at them. You don't know what struggles they're going through. You don't know what privileges they have and they don't have, and more specifically with students of color. Um, so I think what people should take away is just recognize and reflect on how you've sort of treated and talked to and acted around other students of color on campus and I guess reevaluate it if you feel that you've like acted in a way that was that was representative of like white fragility and like being offended that someone called you out on something um and being aware that you shouldn't step around like there's eggshells all over the place um you know it's good to be honest and to ask about things. It's better to ask and to accidentally say something that ends up turning really south. Um, so I think that's that's important to consider. Um, just being transparent and then listening. When someone tells you something, to, is talking about their experience, not every moment is going to be a moment where you have to be like giving them solutions for problems. Um, some problems are literally going to persist probably for the next many, many decades. Um, some problems aren't going to be fixed just by being an ally. Um, sometimes the best thing you can do as an ally is listen and amplify the voices of the people around you. Um, instead of talking over people or assuming things, um, you know, just make sure that, that you are providing the tools necessary that other people need that so that their voices can be heard um, instead of overlooked. After our separate conversations, Jenna, Kara, and I decided to come together and reflect on what we had heard and learned during our interviews. I think what stuck with me the most was definitely when Amy said, the thing about hypervisibility and kind of like straddling the line of like invisibility and hypervisibility and how there's never kind of just existing. 
Because I think that's something that I've never really had to consider. So hearing it, and I think hearing it from her and then using that going into my interview with Hannah and then having Hannah bring it up again before I even like got the chance to ask her about it. I think that was really interesting and it kind of proved how that is very prominent for a lot of people on campus. Yeah, I definitely agree. It it made me think about like when I was talking to Journey and, you know, being the only black person in the class can be very overwhelming because you do have that level of hyper visibility and you enter these spaces and, you know, you don't know what people are thinking, but you know that you're the only black person. And in that, like she said, she feels like she has to speak up on certain things. I remember listening to that interview or I remember listening to Amy talk about that. And I was like, that's just a perfect way to like articulate how it feels. Because if you just go from one extreme to the next extreme. I feel like it was kind of similar for me in a way when I was listening to Madeline and Desley talk, um, just the idea of how they don't really realize their own identity. Um, they kind of created a new one for themselves because they're stuck in this weird place of being in between. But when college came along, it was meeting new people who had to um, kind of relearn and like, they had to learn again about who they are. And I think that as, you know, as we're growing up, we're gonna always learn a bit more about ourselves. And this time, you know, as they went to college, they decided to take a step back and think about their experiences as an Asian too. At least for me, like before I even came to SU, like I was always surrounded by people who looked like me, you know, even though, you know, like it, it would never have happened that I would have been the only black person in my class. Like that was never heard of. And you see it happen to people who like go to PWIs. You hear like, oh, you gotta watch out and stuff. And you're like, oh, LOL, I can do it. I can take it. And then it happens. You're just like, whoa, like it's like, it's not something you're, you're ever fully prepared for. Yeah, I think Hannah was talking about how she went to PWIs like growing up. Basically she went, her schools were always predominantly white, but she said that she's never even really like realized it as much as when she got here and she was in I know she mentioned she was in a class of like 30 people and there was like two students of color in the entire class and she was like I just can't imagine the sort of toll that that takes because it is like you're being made into a spokesperson for your entire identity because and I know she mentioned like when certain topics would come up everyone kind of looked at her and it was like it was that sort of thing and I just can't is I think it's definitely important that we talk about it more because I also think that something Amy mentioned was that the majority culture, and I can only speak for myself, but like isn't aware of it as much. And definitely like I learned so much just having these two conversations. And it's just like, if it was something we talked about more, I feel like that could definitely be beneficial for everyone on campus. And it, you know, it shows that we all have our own stories to tell. Um, there are stories that we think that will align with us just because, you know, you know, we look similar or something, but at the end of the day, you don't know someone's story. You have to really dig deep. Um, like um, my segment kind of ends with us talking about how, you know, it's okay to ask questions because that's part of learning. And sometimes making mistakes is part of learning too. Um, we just have to move on from it and then take what we know now and then apply it to the future. You know, um, don't let um, our mistakes kind of let us down and like, you know, go through the, all that guilt and stuff because we just need to keep on learning. That's it. But I also think it's important to point out like the fact that, you know, this is only 
like our stories, only the ones that we kind of have access to. There are like, you know, plenty of um, groups and communities that we're not talking about this episode, but I think this is a start in a good direction. When I was creating my segment, I realized that there are groups that I didn't include. I do mention something about international students and I never got to speak with any of them. Um, neither did I get to speak with many people who are from culturally Asian uh, families like me. So I, I realized that I am using my own experiences and um, applying that, but that in general is not you know the same for everyone. We all have our own um, individual ideas of what our kind of stories mean to us. All of our segments are very female oriented and there is a lot of difference in male experience on the campus and we just haven't had a chance to touch on that. This has been another episode of Me SU. Thank you for listening. Music credits in order of appearance. Broke for free by Big Joe Drummer. Spacey song by I Speak Waves. And Above the Clouds by Free Music. <laughs>